Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to episode two of the Canadian Real Estate Investor. This is Nick Hill. I'm joined by the one and only Daniel Foch. Dan, how's it going, buddy? Good, man. How are you? I am good. I'm good. You were telling me about a pretty cool deal you've got going on right before we pressed record here. So let's uh, let's rewind on that. Yeah, I had a cool call yesterday with uh, with Jordan, who you know, and um, and Jordan's a guest that we'll probably have on the podcast. Um, Jordan Skrinko of PreCondo.ca sells a lot of pre-construction condo units. Not my favorite style of investing, but but you know, a thesis we can discuss regardless. And, um, yeah, I was just talking to him about this development out in the East coast who I, you know, both of these individuals I met on Twitter, which is kind of cool. Like, you know, a lot of people talk about network marketing and then social media. And like, to me, they're like the same thing, right? Um, you just like meet new friends on social media and, and I'm just doing, do, trying to do deals with them. So, yeah, I mean, look, I can't obviously can't discuss much about it cause it's in very early stages, but basically if things, um, ended up landing, we'd, we'd be bringing forward, Quite a few uh, five to six cap units in a major East Coast market that has like one percent vacancy, um, and and the purchase price would be pretty low. Obviously, they'd be condos, fully managed. You know, like ideally one year of uh, free rental or property management or whatever. So, yeah, that's the objective there. Love it, man. You always got such such cool stuff going on. Um, we're gonna and we're gonna be doing that, guys. For everyone listening, we're gonna be updating you guys on our personal portfolios, just kind of what's going on in our lives um, from a real estate, mortgage, investing perspective. Yeah, yeah. I think I mean it shows people that we're active in the in the in the industry and in the business, and, and kind of have our finger on the pulse of what's going on in the market. Um, what about you? I was, how's your past couple of weeks been? It's been a weird market, eh? It's a weird market and we'll, we'll definitely get into that. Uh, personally, my, my portfolio, uh, I am actually headed to Peterborough sometime next week. I just relisted the upper unit of a beautiful century home duplex I have there. Uh, and I was able to raise the rent from 1450 to 1500 and I had about 70 people reach out in a 12-hour period. I listed it last night on Facebook Marketplace in the traditional wow. fashion that we do, and yeah, that's been uh, overwhelming. So we'll do an episode on on how to secure the best tenants and, and the way that Dan and I go about doing that. It's a pretty systematic, easy approach. Um, Run me through, before you do that, why you use Facebook Marketplace, because I, I, I love it as well. <laughs> and we talked a little bit about, because like, I think we saw saw a uh, a buddy of ours use like uh, I guess they had like an influencer post with Kijiji or something like that but like yeah. I'm a huge Facebook marketplace fa fan and I like it because you can just like I think you're the same way you can browse people's profile like qualify or disqualify pretty quickly right on the qualitative side it is it's a very funny way to do it it's it's probably the the best way to do it because people unknowingly submit way more information to you with with one click of a button on their profile right so when someone's like hey uh you know i don't have a pet or i've got this one little yorkie poodle or whatever it may be and there's a picture of a great dane or you know three right. cats or or whatever it may be you know certain people have very extreme political views that you would never get from a rental application so facebook just gives a little window into that person's life that they might not even know that you're looking through that you better be looking through as a landlord right yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting, right? And it comes down to like my philosophy that 
uh, being a landlord is a relationship business, right? And you're, you know, people can submit on the quantitative side a very compelling application, but I, I like Facebook because it gives you, you know, the, the qualitative input for that rental application. Anyway, I digress. What are we here to talk about today? And maybe we can do a whole episode on that, but, uh, but oh, what I'm are we sure here to talk we will. about today? I'm sure we will. We both got some pretty good stories from, from our rentals. So, and that's actually a great segue into today's episode, the second episode. The working title here is Rents Up, Lumbers Down, Rates Up, Sales Down. So obviously a bit of a confusing time. Now let's jump right into rent. This is interesting for both of us, Dan, because we both rent our primary residences, but own a few rentals each. So, you know, Ontario limiting the rent increase by 2.5%. This just came out last week. We're uh, recording this episode on Wednesday, July 6th, everybody. So for some people, this is probably old news. Um, But let's say say rents do go up a full 2.5% and you as a landlord do it or you as a tenant experience it. What does that mean for your wallet? Well, the average residential rent in Ontario is $2,118. So a full 2.5% increase on that would be $53 annually. Then the average one bedroom in Toronto is just $18 less than that at $2,100. So that means you could live anywhere in the province in a house, but if you choose to live downtown Toronto in a one bedroom, you're pretty damn close to that uh, that provincial average. And that means that's up 22% from last year and your rent would be going up 50, just over $55. So doesn't seem like a lot, right? Am I going to go through this whole process, submit a uh, an N10, I believe it is, you know, give them 90 days, go through all the that process just for an extra $50. Let's talk about why that $50 is important from a cap rate resale investor perspective, Dan. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the big topics right now is obviously inflation, right? And the reality is the input costs of being a landlord, you have to remember that landlords, I mean, I would say most landlords don't actually behave this way, but landlords should be behaving as though they're running a business. And I, I call being a landlord a relationship business, right? And businesses have input costs and input costs in running a rental building are maintenance, right? Uh, gas, Electricity, right? All and all of these things are inflationary. The cost of them is going up. And if you're so, on a variable rate mortgage, that's gone right, up. Right, right. Um, and so those co- the you know the the uh, output cost, the cost of the good that's being sold, it, it, you know, is rent. And rent ought to, according to most economic theory, be um, indexed at inflation so that it can increase to cover these input costs. All other businesses are entitled to this. Nobody likes it. It's called cost push inflation. So basically, as an example, we're dealing with it right now. Gas is going up. And so everything in the world that needs gas to get from point A to point B uh, is going up in cost because those costs are being pushed to the consumer or to the next piece in the supply chain, right? So the delivery company says, oh, I'm going to charge the, the grocery store more money, right? And the grocery store says, well, I'm just going to charge the consumer that money. At the end of the day, the consumer is the person who gets screwed. And, it, and, and, and screwed is not really the way to say it, but that's who absorbs the ultimate cost, right? And in this case, it is tenants who are absorbing the ultimate cost uh, of, of inflation. Whether or not that is correct, it, it it's up for debate. But the reality is in the last year, there was zero cost. So from January 1st to December 31st, it was a 0% increase that was allowed. So that was that rent freeze that we had in the Ontario market, right? Um, in BC, you're seeing, uh, again, um, big changes to the to the increases that are allowable. 
historically, the objective is that rents are supposed to be increased at the guideline inflation or, or what the inflation number is, what the CPI number is for that period of time. And so it's interesting because on the Ontario website, it says, oh, rental guideline increase was 2.5%. And then it says, comma, below inflation. So they're like, oh, we screwed la- we screwed you tenants, sorry, but we also but we screwed landlords more. Like they almost just had to put that in to say, you know, yeah, we're, we're not sure which side of the aisle we're really um, representing here. We'll just disappoint uh, everybody that in that case. Yeah, yeah. And so, I, I mean, look, if you look at the history of, of rental increases in Canada, um, f- for a good period of time, uh, for, I think it was like from 91, I believe, 91 until 2017, anything that was newly built, any purpose-built rental was unregulated in rental increases. So any new product, anything that was built after 1991, you could increase it by whatever you wanted. Until 2017, the Ontario government, Kathleen Wynne's government, reformed the Residential Tenancies Act, the RTA, and they made it so that uh, anything after 20 or anything during that period of time, everything in the province was regulated under uh, this this inflation guideline rent increase. Then the Ford government came in 2018, changed it again. So now, but they couldn't change everything prior. So. 2018 onward, any new anything built after that period of time again is not subject to any rental increase limitations. Um, the idea would be that this would uh, support the construction of more purpose-built rental, but it doesn't seem to be the case. And it also there's also you know a lot of a big school of economic thought, Murtaza Hyder, who who posted recently in the Financial Post, mentioned that uh, these these um, actually end up hurting tenants because they're stifling the the pool, the supply pool. On the rental side, so interesting uh, period, uh, interesting schools of thought around uh, the whole idea. Not things I want to get too nuanced on, but just you know, worth further reading for anybody who's interested. For sure, I think it really is going to um, illustrate the the issue of the lack of purpose built rentals we have in this in this country. Um, so let's just go over quickly the the specific rules. If you are a landlord and you do want to increase, so in most cases. The residential unit can be increased 12 months after either the last rent increase or the date that tenancy begins. If you're a landlord, you must also give that tenant a written notice with at least 90 days before it takes effect. You must provide them with an N10 form that can be found on the LTB website, which is the Landlord Tenant Board, where all the other N forms, all of our lovely N forms can be found. So just print it off and go deal with it as such. Before we close out this section, What's what's the importance of raising this rent? How does that have an effect on the actual cap rate? So if I raise rent every year for the next three years versus if I don't raise rent every year for the next three years, even at just $50, how does that compound into a better cap rate? Yeah, so I mean, look, income is your numerator in your uh, in your cap rate equation, right? So it's net operating income divided by your purchase price. So the top, if you increase the top number of that equation, then the cap rate improves, right? So the rate of return on the property improves. So it should hypothetically Im- increase your rate of return because it makes uh, the the increase in rent uh, reflected into the net operating income of the property. Okay, great. So basically when you go to sell, that is going to be now added to the equation, which will equal a better cap rate, which is what investors look for when they purchase properties. So I think the key takeaway here is run your rentals like a business, right? I mean, this is going to be, don't look at it almost like the, you know, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt my tenant. 
your tenant should be sharing the weight with you. I mean, we just went over all the increased costs that landlords face. That should be absorbed by not just the landlord, but but the tenant as well. So yeah, I mean, look, there are a lot of there are a lot of bad landlords out there who are going doing above guideline increases, but there are also a lot of bad landlords who are going to try and evict a tenant falsely um, in the event of you know when they're dealing with inf- major inflationary costs like this, or seeing a market where there is a you know, I mean, if a, if a landlord got a tenant two years ago, there's probably a twenty percent gap between what their what the the tenant is paying and what they they could get in the market, right? And so a landlord might feel compelled to do what's called a rent eviction, a fake rent eviction, fake family move in, blah blah blah, whatever. There's so many different ways that the system is abused. The reality is, if a landlord is approaching a tenant to uh to do a uh, act guideline increase, that means that they're playing within the rules and that from my perspective, they're, they're a, a good business person. They're, they are running it like a business and an ethical one at that, right? Because there are ways that they could go out and try and get a, a above guideline increase um, illegally and they're choosing not to do that. And, and with the current rent environment where, you know, again, with the theme being rents are up, um, the, you're hypothetically, again, it's to me, every business relationship is an exchange, right? It's you're trading value. The landlord is trading value because, yeah, they, they might not be increasing at the cost of inflation, but they're getting an increase out of it. And the tenant is getting uh, – the, yeah, they have to pay a small increase, but it's not nearly what it would be if they had to go find a new unit. They don't have moving costs. They don't have to pay the new – like you just described to me, 1400 to 1450 to 1500 bucks, or, you know, I mean, in, in the Toronto market, you're seeing rents go from – you know, 2000 to 2500 or whatever, like that, those are major increases that the tenant now doesn't have to pay because they just got to renew another year at, at below inflation indexed rent increase. Totally. And, and let's not forget, you know, first and last and, and the, the overall expenses it can cost to, to actually make a move. Let's move on to the next topic, which has a very dumb subheading that you guys can't see, but it's big tree fall hard. And that is my way of saying lumber is finally dropping. So after more than tripling since 2022, lumber prices have now crashed over 60% uh, as of Tuesday, July 5th. Lumber costs contracted and closed at about $640 per MBF, which is a forced return for 1,000 board feet. Um, Up 2.6 from the month before, but prices are still 50% lower from the same time last year. Prices did peak at $1,686. Oh my goodness, that is insane in May of 2021 and have since fallen 60% from those crazy, crazy highs. So that was like a per, the 1600 was a per ounce, I believe, right? Like the, on the commodity prices. So um, uh, I'm not sure. I think I'm pretty sure that was, uh, we'll have I'm to. I'm just going to screenshot the chart that I'm looking at for the show notes. But basically, like I have it on the per ounce uh, peaked in, looks like May of 2021. Uh, uh, yeah, May third, I think, twenty twenty one was around sixteen thirty four. Uh, then it peaked again in uh twenty twenty two, uh February uh twenty eighth. It looks like at around fourteen hundred bucks. It's come down a lot. Um, it looks like we're trading at around the numbers that you could. The last time we saw these numbers would be looks like the end of twenty twenty one. I'm gonna say looks like November eighth of twenty twenty one. Uh, here's the thing. Was lumber significantly cheaper in November of 2021? Not really, right? Like the reality is, yeah, some of, some of these costs you start to see get recapitalized into the bottom line for 
developers, construction, et cetera. But the reality is, and it goes back to that that conversation we just had about cost push inflation. These people, the, the the people who are selling this product, have realized that it's the demand isn't super elastic. It doesn't change that much when prices go up. So unless we start to see destruction of demand, which I think we will as a result of a recession, they're not going to charge significantly less um, unless they need to, to stimulate more demand. Right. And so, and, and the other piece is like, if you think, so I'll try and kind of tie it in, especially with rent. Right. When you said uh, if you're increasing the rent, it'll allow an, uh, an investor to see the property, maybe in a better light because they could be valuing the property based on that cap rate, right. Based on the income. So we know appraisers who determine the value of properties for banks, Look at a couple of different things. So there are three different ways that they value a property. I know this because I did my AACI courses with UBC. Uh, so there's way number one is comparables, right? So they're going to go look at five other properties that are similar in the area and they're going to base a value on that. So that's number one. Number two is um, income. So they're going to use an income to determine, okay, yeah, you know, uh, Peterborough is a five cap market and Nick's duplex makes X and I apply that cap rate, that income uh, multiplier to the net operating income of Nick's property. And that's what I'm going to value the property at. Number three is replacement cost new. What would it cost if you were to get the land? So they extract the land value for a comparable building lot in the area. Then they rebuild the house hypothetically in today's world. And then they depreciate it by however many years the house has been, let's say beat up by, right? Um, Like a car, you would depreciate a car, right? Um, then they establish what that what that value would be, and that's so. Those are the 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 appraisal is basically what protects the equity of the bank who's lending on the property, right? They they hypothesize that the property is worth this amount. So rent and lumber matter for both of those things because rents establish the income side, and lumber establishes the replacement cost side. Now, when you think about lumber. You're building a brand new house, Nick. How much of it are you building out of lumber? Like, what component would that be, right? What percentage of the overall cost is is just your lumber cost? It's like between ten and twenty percent, right? It's not major, right? So, so yeah, lumber cost is going to come down. Has tile come down? Has electricians' wages comes down? Right? Have framer co- framers' wages comes down? So, to me, like a lot of these input costs on developing new housing are more inflationary than deflationary. And I think that that'll change as we get into a recessionary Canada. But for now, it seems like construction costs aren't going down anytime soon. So lumber per se isn't maybe the best indicator as to whether or not the cost of building a new unit is going to go up. Yeah, very well said. I mean, look, it's not just lumber. It's it's the price of like we've seen concrete go up. We've seen basically all the building materials go up. This was just really interesting because similar to everything else and the clickbait headlines, we've now seen, you know, a massive drop off in prices. Well, that's because those prices were unrealistically inflated beforehand. This is just a good sign for me personally, and I think for everybody, because I remember the stories a year and a half ago where people were driving, you know, five, six hours with a flatbed to go get some two by fours from, you know, out of province or or several hours away just to be able to build that deck or finish that extension on your house. This, I think, hopefully is just an indicator of where we see all construction prices starting to go. Now, the uh, Canadian Building Association and others have said these prices probably won't be 
um, ingrained by the contractors and GCs till the end of summer. So we're still going to be waiting. You know, if that means that you're planning to build a, a big deck now or or two months from now, it might be worth waiting. Um, might not be. It depends on it depends on the project. If it's something for your personal residence or. For instance, for us, we just had to buy a whole bunch of two by fours for the framing of our flip, which I know our our mutual partner and, and contractor friend Joey was was not so happy about the price. So, hopefully, a good indicator of where the the overall construction market's going, but still not where we need things to be. Yeah, I mean, the market's still trading at above replacement cost. I would say so until the market starts trading below that, which is the point at which I would say it no longer becomes economical on the equity side to renovate a property, right? Like building that deck isn't going to get a one-to-one increase in value on your home. Um, Once you cross that line, I think that demand starts to stifle for flipping, for renovations in general, et cetera. Um, But I I don't know exactly where that that shift is. But I, I don't know if like it's necessarily a good idea to try and time a renovation based on material costs. Like I know, I know guys who were buying, uh, filling their enclosed trailers with lumber when it was surging, you know, (laughs) last year and being like, Oh, it's going to go up forever. And then it crashed. Right. And so it look, I mean, if you're a contractor or a real estate investor, um, maybe don't try to be a commodity trader also. Right. Uh, So that's just my two cents. It's like focus on what you're good at. Right. Like, so when everyone else was hoarding toilet paper, real estate investors were hoarding lumber. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, but not. Yeah, like I knew contractors who were doing that, right? And it, like, it ultimately ended up being a bad idea. So this is the thing. It's like, this is why you and I are going to be exhaustive about analyzing real estate because it's probably the one thing in the world that we could actually be really good at. You know, rather than if I wanted to be a lumber commodities trader, if I was especially passionate about that, I would get dive in as far as I have with with that in uh, as I am in real estate. But that's not the case. So. I would say renovate the house. If the economics make sense and you need to do a renovation, do it whenever, right? But, you know, like it's like you're better off trying to time the market, which I also think is a bad idea than trying to time the lumber market, right? Could not agree more. I I am hoping, again, that this is just a, a key indicator of where things are going. I mean, we all know that, you know, I did a little piece about it on Instagram. There's 8 million homes that need to be built to, to you know, solve our housing crisis within the next, uh, sorry, 6 million homes that need to be built within the next eight years. Obviously, the price of uh, construction materials and labor shortages is, is you know, going the opposite way which we need. So this is just one little glimmer of hope. Well, look, the, it comes down to like my principle of just value investing in real estate, right? Like it's like negotiate a good deal with your contractor. Make sure that you're getting good bang for your buck on that deck if you're using that as an example, right? And so that no matter what, you're not upset about the price that you paid for it. It was like if you're going to go buy stock, think about the way that Warren Buffett approaches buying Coca-Cola or whatever. He says, buy the company at a good price, right? Right now, a lot of, well, prior to this, you know, most recent correction in the equities market, a lot of businesses were trading at multiples that didn't make sense, right? They're trading too high. Real estate was doing the same thing. If you're looking at real estate in a lot of those, uh, you know, February, March of this year in the GTA market, and even in, in a lot of markets across Canada still haven't even come off peak, right? But you're looking at it and you're saying, ah, I don't know. That's not really a compelling investment at that price from my perspective. You have to approach the renovation the same way, right? Okay, yeah, maybe it's I don't feel that deck is a is a super good value investment right now at that price, right? Okay, then sit tight and if and if it doesn't change then don't ever do it and if it does change then then you know, pull the trigger on that investment when 
that it makes sense. Totally well said. And, you know, I think just to replace the deck example with, let's say, something like putting in a basement suite that you need to have framed out that's going to cost you money, you know, sitting on something like that is obviously a lot different than building a deck at your primary residence. If you have something that's going to increase the equity, going to increase the cash flow on a on any one of your properties, whether residential, commercial, industrial, do that because you're just you're just sitting and waiting. And again, timing the market, timing the, the lumber yeah. market or the trades is not going to help. Well, if you're if you're thinking about timing the market, like again, uh, lumber commodities are sophisticated, right? So, if your 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 buddy's a contractor and he's like, "Look, I'm booked up for the next six months. If I'm gonna try and accommodate you, I'm gonna be charging you a lot of money because I know that I I'm, I can sell these jobs at way higher and t- I, to pay my crew, it's gonna cost you a lot of money to, for me to put the suite in." But you personally think, okay, Canada's going to be in a recession by the end of the year, and you know I would see some demand destruction on the renovation side. Think about that and say, okay, I'm going to try and hit my contractor buddy up when we, when you know when I think the market is slower, right? Time time things on the the things that you understand, not lumber commodities, unless you're a commodity trader, right? Rates up, up, up. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is yeah. a hot topic, right? Hot, hot is it? Topic. I haven't really talked about this at all in the last several weeks. Um, yeah, so I'm going to let Dan run some numbers here. A couple takeaways. I'm in the mortgage space. Uh, this is something I get asked every single day. The main thing that I've been doing is helping people run their numbers, uh, reminding them that rates are only up right now because we have to fight inflation and that if you listen to the first episode, rates go up just so they can come back down. Housing is actually also cheaper now. So yes, rates are more expensive. Housing's cheaper. What's the delta between those? Um, and and to be honest, we've seen a lot of the big banks get a lot more competitive with their variables uh, just because they're adapting to this new world. And then finally, and I'll hand it over after this uh, to you, Dan, because I know you're, you're a big bond yield kind of guy. But just today, again, Wednesday, July 6th, we've started to see the bond, the five-year bond yield move in the right direction, I think. So I mean, what I is that? depends who you are, right? But yeah. yeah, I guess. So So why don't we talk a bit about uh, the bond yield? What does that mean for the market? And then we'll run through a situation. Again, there is an announcement coming up July 13th. This episode will air before that. Dan and I are in prediction mode, but we're going to run through the two most likely scenarios, which is a 50 bips or 0.5 increase or a 75 bips, which is a 0.75 increase. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I'm not, I don't know if anybody's qualified to talk about macro, but I'm certainly not qualified to talk about macro. But if I had to guess, right, I'm operating on the assumption that we're going to see a 75. And the reason that I believe that is because more than anything, the US dollar strength over the past little bit has just been remarkable over the past few days. This is Wednesday, July 6th. So Canada can't really afford, like, we can't really afford to lag the US Fed that much because we're starting to put pressure on our currency at that point. And once we do that, then you start to see more inflation because you get inflation through trade, right? We're buying goods in US dollar settlement currency and then they come into Canada and they get marked up as a result of the, the so to me, 75, I think I can almost like I would I would bet a lot of money that we're gonna see a 75 basis point hike. We just saw it in the States, so that's why, you know, we have to kind of follow suit. Um, let's talk about how that affects the average mortgage. And and then I can talk a little bit about the bond curve. So the, the Canadian five-year bond yield curve is based, I just, I don't, I don't try and forecast this thing at all. I just try and watch it um, to get an idea for what the market 
thinks i i assume that the market is smarter than me in a lot of cases they are and every actually i don't think they've ever not been smarter than me so i the market <laughs> is right now pricing in or like when you look at the bond yield curves you can see what the market is pricing in in regards to rate hikes right or changes in the interest rate and so when i watch the canada five year to me the canada five year is what the chartered banks sort of base their five-year uh, fixed interest rates off of. And the reason for that is because they basically have two products they can put their money into. Number one is the five-year Canada bond, number which is guaranteed at X percent, whatever the yield is that given day. And number two is a residential mortgage. Those are, let's say, the two safest products that they can put in if there was no other thing they were allowed to invest in. So they say, okay, bond yield is at 3%. And I'm going to mark that up because I don't think Canadians are exceptionally, you know, I think there's a little bit of risk associated with that. So I'm going to mark that up by 2%, let's say. And that spread tells you kind of like what, how much risk they're price, pricing in in the market. So right now it's like 2, 2.25% or something like that. Um, and so they're putting mar- mortgages out in the market at 5%. Um, so your government of Canada bond yield sort of dictates what happens in your fixed side. Uh and, and sometimes, so you can sort of watch what's happening in the market to see what you might anticipate the rate hiking schedule to be. So if we see, if we're talking about the variable side last year, let's just use, I just want to, because there was that article that came out, like the Bank of Canada said, uh, monthly payments could increase like 45%. It was later re- revised to, well, actually, I think it was like the media said it was 45%. And then the Bank of Canada or the Bank of Canada released the video of TIFF talking about it. And it ended up being like 30%. So everyone was like, this is ridiculous. Anyway, so clickbait. I actually, yeah, but you know what? There was actually an example in which like it could, if the variable, like if people were signing a 1.5 variable or like a 0.9% variable, which did exist last year in 2021. Um, but let's say you're at a $600,000 mortgage. I use that because the average Canadian house price is like 700 and something thousand. Um, let's use a, you know, the loan to value doesn't really matter. $600,000 mortgage. 25-year amortization at a 1.5% interest rate, which people were getting in 2021 on the variable side and even on the fixed side, which is absolutely insane. Um, your mortgage payment is $23.98. And the uh, amount of principal that you would pay if you were to, uh, in your term is $102,000. The in- amount of interest that you would pay in your term is $41,000. These are rough estimates. I'm rounding sort of down to the nearest, down or up to the nearest thousand. Um, so 41000 in interest that you would pay on a $600,000 mortgage over. uh, And I I always talk about the total cost. I think that Canadians, the way that I think that about real estate investing isn't so much, I'm not a payment guy. I think Canadians have to stop obsessing over truck payment, house payment, blah, 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 payment, right? We got to start buying investments and thinking about real costs. So you're going to pay $41,000 in interest. And the the reason that I think that's important is because you can analyze, especially in the GTA right now, okay, well, a $600,000 house has actually gone down more than $40,000 right now. So technically, just based on on uh, buying po- or borrowing power destruction and interest payments, you're actually getting it at a net better deal than you were before, right? It's like, you know, when people say the stock, oh, you liked it at 100 bucks, you must love it at 50 bucks, right? <laughs> but So anyway, so just to sum that up again, $600,000 mortgage at a 1.5% interest rate, 25-year amortization on a monthly payment schedule with a five-year term, Interest payments are $41,000 over that term. Same mortgage, $600,000, interest rate of 3%. So doubling the interest rate, which this jump has already happened. Variables have gone from 1.5 to in the three range, right? So three actually would be a low for a current variable. Yeah, I'd say that the big bank average right now, and again, Wednesday, July 6th, is sitting at about 3.25, which makes it easier for math's sake if we want to round that up to four for the priced in variable. 
Yeah, I mean, even leave it at 3%. Like, if we'll just do this as an absolute conservative because I already have the math in front of me. 600,000, 3% interest rate, 25-year amortization, monthly payments on a five-year term. Your interest payment doubles, right? Easy math. Forty. It was 40,000 before or it was 41 something. Now interest is 83,216 uh, over the course of a five-year term. What happens in that case, and this is what people who have a variable mortgage need to be thinking about because a lot of variable mortgages are static payment, right? So your payment doesn't change. So in the first case at 1.5%, you were paying $100,000, just over $100,000 in principal. Now, you're paying $87,152 in principal, right? So your principal payment gets watered down significantly as well. And all of that extra, that money that could have been going to amortizing your mortgage is now going towards servicing capital costs. So the costs of your borrowing increased over a five-year term by 100%, by $40,000. Now let's examine a scenario in which rates go up another 150 bips, Right which I think could happen, honestly. That's that's my outlook on the market. I am behaving as if that is going to happen. 5% interest rate, $600,000 mortgage, same thing, monthly payment, 25-year AM. Your interest payments over the course of that mortgage are $140,000. The amount of principal that you have paid, in this case, if you had a static payment, you would have hit your trigger rate already because you'd be paying negative interest. But your principal payment in that period of time would be $68,000 940, sorry, $68,940. So again, principal is getting paid down slower. Interest cost is going up substantially. This is where you start to see that, that philosophy, especially people on the fixed rate side who are kind of racing against the market to get in with those new rate holds because they know they've done the math that, oh, prices have come down X amount, but I, either I'm paying $100,000 more or I'm not going to be able to afford to buy something if rates keep going up, right? Um, anything you want to add there? Yeah, just that was that was. I hope people have a pen, pen and paper to take some notes here. And again, yeah, I'll screenshot with- all those. I'll screenshot all those um, for the show notes as well. But like, what I would recommend using is not don't use any of the bank um, mortgage calculators and stuff. Uh, Government of Canada has an amazing one. Uh, I'll link it in the show notes as well. Um, but basically, you can type in like the just the mortgage amount and the different rates and below it it gives you a calculation summary that shows you again total principal and total interest those are the numbers that matter to me right i'm not thinking about a payment totally okay so just to unpack that for a second dan you mentioned static payment earlier so each mortgage has two sections of the actual bulk payment so let's say your mortgage is $2000 within that 2000 there will be both principal and interest. The interest goes to the bank. So the bank gets paid first. The principal goes to your debt. Now, in just about every single case, the interest far outweighs the principal. And you're on what's called an amortization schedule, which I just made a amore. I'm going to go watch my Instagram. It's done. Amortizione. Amortizione. It's Italian, I guess. But the static payment. So basically, the longer, the more interest you pay, the longer you get drawn out. And again, you you said you mentioned trigger rate. We'll we'll do a deeper dive into that. But that's what you guys really have to pay attention to: is how much of your payment is actually paying off your house. Well, that's right? a and, passive income, right? Like money that's going to an in, going to interest isn't is you don't earn that. Exactly. It's literally your tenant. Like let's just assume, okay, tenant is the input, right? That's the income and. Bank and equity are the output, right? If the tenant is paying, if you're if you're at a point where your interest is so high on a variable static payment that you're paying only a hundred bucks a month in principal, then you're literally your tenant is just paying the bank interest, right? At that point, so it, like to me that fun, that's a fundamental loss. Like you're actually creating 
an economic waste, right? You're if basically any, like, just the middleman between the tenant and the bank that, that right, takes, like the that tenant takes all the risk. Right, might as well actually be buying the house, right? Yeah, yeah no, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so, and so, like to me, that's a lot of people think about cash flow first, right? And don't get me wrong, cash flow is great, right? But like, if you're trying to build wealth, it matters how much principal you're paying down, especially in the GTA, because we don't have cash flow rich markets. Actually, most people are buying cash flow negative properties, yeah. right? This isn't Oklahoma and, where you buy a $100,000 house and you're making a thousand bucks a month as soon as you put someone in there, right? I mean, most cash flow, or most stuff in Toronto or the GTA is actually cash flow negative or break even. Yeah, if it was bought within the last five years, it's likely a cash flow negative. If it was bought at a normal loan to value, let's say 75 to 80%, right? Um, and I don't know anybody who's buying at 50% in the GTA, really. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you're thinking about this in, in the Canadian context, right? Like, if you're, and to me, like, that's where I'm looking at markets like Saskatchewan. I'm looking at markets, you know, major CMAs, and like, I, I like Saskatchewan. I actually love Saskatchewan. We can talk about sort of where I'm at on different markets across the country, but um, St. John's, Newfoundland, or St. John, Newfoundland, uh, Atlantic Canada, I love, Moncton, I love, um, although they're changing some of the rules with investment. Um, Quebec City, I love, I especially love it for the resurrection of tourism that I think we'll see. It really didn't see price jumps. Like a lot of these markets that to me are trading, I think about real estate investing as a value investment, similar to the philosophy of Warren Buffett, right? You hear this from the guys on uh, the Canadian Investor, the TCI podcast. Value, if you're thinking about uh, investing, you should think about it as a value investor and what markets are trading well, right? And so, yeah, there are markets in Canada that trade well from a cash flow perspective, but they also trade well because you can get in with uh, a low mortgage, right? And you're getting a, a higher yield. Maybe you're getting a plus five hundred bucks, plus a thousand bucks, and that's that's money that you're saving, right? Uh, and then you're putting that towards you know fund, a, you know, a fund that you're going to use to buy more and more properties every year, right? But people need to think about the rate at which their principal is being paid down because that's the wealth, right? Major, majorly important and, and very overlooked is is the AM schedule. So so take a look at that. If anyone has any questions, reach out to Dan and I, send us an email, DM us on Instagram. We help people run these kind of numbers all the time. Um, as a mortgage broker, I've got uh, all the backend tools to tell you exactly how much uh, of your payment is going to principal and interest. So yeah, and that, even if you're in a market that we can't really represent you, like I think one of our objectives here is to start building a network of, you know, like friends around the country, right? Where we can send deals back and forth. So if you're somebody who wants to invest in Saskatchewan, as an example, we can hook you up with a realtor out there. Um, and so just, just send us a message. We'll help you underwrite the numbers and then we'll, we'll refer you to somebody good out in the market that you are bullish on, right? Um, anyway, let's, I know we're, we're sort of getting short on time here. So let's, let's talk about sales volume. Yeah. Um, let's, let's wrap it up. We've got the top realtor in the country here. Oh, wait, that is that, yeah, I'm with you right now. Perfect. No, that's you not me. Certainly not me. <laughs> I actually think, I, I do think that the number one realtor by sales volume is like right around the corner for me. I think it's Mark Ferris, who's in Barrie. I see Everyone's that guy signs everywhere. Oh, yeah, handsome like, yeah, handsome yeah, devil the on there too. Yeah. Handsome yeah, wow. dude. yeah gr- great looking dude. Face all over the Ferris, if you're listening to this. If you've driven a 400 series highway in the past two years, you've seen this guy. You know who he yeah. is. Yeah, no, he's good. I mean, him, I think it would be like him, Frank Leo, uh, Daryl King's big too, right? But anyway, like I'm cer- certainly not number one. Well, Maybe you're more qualified one, most, than most... I am to, to to read these to read these stats. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, these are my stats, right? So year-over-year uh, year change in volume. So June of last year, which I would say was a pretty typical June. I think it was a little rich. I think it was running a little hot. Uh, because of lockdown, cyclicality, et cetera. But uh, Durham was down 34% year over year. Halton, 
down 43%. This is volume, so the number of sales. Peel, 52% less homes sold. Toronto, 43% less homes sold. And York Region, 52% less homes sold. Now, I also put in the Korea stats, uh, which basically talks about the monthly home sales. And if you look at the chart, I put this in the show notes, so I, I would highly encourage anybody to take a look at it. But if you also just uh, look at Korea, just Google Korea, C-R-E-A, sales volume, um, there's this chart that basically shows the month, 10-year monthly moving average. And basically, real estate sales in the entire country were running about 25% hot at a minimum and probably 50% hot at, at a maximum right after COVID started. So basically it became our national sport. It was like not, you know, it was like, oh, how's, lock, we're in a lockdown. Let's just go buy houses. Like actually, I don't, it was the weirdest thing. But anyway. It was a great time. <laughs> yeah, so if you look at that chart, if you look at that chart heading into 2020, you can see a huge dip, right? And then it shoots up right after that March, when March, everyone's like trying to figure out like, oh my God, is the world going to end? And then they're like, no, okay, it's not. Let's just go buy houses, right? Like that was like, March was like when people didn't know whether or not COVID was like the black plague, right? And then- literally straight line up after that and it kind of just like curves and bounces and then coming into 2022 it peaked in february and then just it has reverted to the mean in a very very unforgiving manner and i really think like we're here to stay right there's a reason that 10 year monthly moving averages look pretty consistent real estate sales volume trades pretty predictably in a normal market and so for some reason the past two years were an anomaly and we're going to stay on that mean. And that means a lot of realtors are like, there's going to be some serious pain in the, in the real estate market from my perspective. I mean, we're in, in the GTA massively oversupplied on the realtor side, but uh, I mean, this is from my perspective, when sales volume is correcting to the mean, this means that there are far less buyers in the market. So what's coming slowly, but surely is a balance. I mean, we're already in a balanced market in the GTA or a potentially don't make me say it, a buyer's market. And this is why I think it's so timely that we're starting this podcast and that the guys from, from TCI reached out to us to start this podcast, because I actually think that I tweeted this like in February, I think it was like two days, three days after the peak. And I knew, like I I think I called the peak to like within two or three days. I'm not, not trying to brag, but like, I think that's important. Um, and I said, the next two years are going to present once in a lifetime buying opportunities for millennial real estate investors. And I really believe that I still do. And, and with rents rising and prices coming down, nothing is going to shake that feeling for me. Love that. Profound words from a, from a profound guy. Um, you did predict it. And, and uh, you know, I just watched the big short the other night and I, and I thought of you. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm like Ben Rickert, but housing like, <laughs> um, you know, I saw my seeds. I saw it. So honestly, that's the guy I was, I was like, of course he's Brad Pitt. Um, I, uh, jaded and obsessed with seeds, jaded, love seeds, handsome, kind of wants to get out of the game, but can't help himself stays in it. It's classic. Just loves deals. Loves deals. Um, I saw something and we'll, we'll try to wrap it up after this quote, but it was, uh, you know, quote, it was in quotations 2026 and it was, man, I wish I bought more in 2023 in 2022. Yeah. And, yeah. and that is going to be the sentiment, right? It always is. And, you know, if you go back and listen to the first episode, we talk a lot about cycles. I'm sure we'll be talking about cycles. I'm not talking cyclists, guys in spandex ripping around on the, on the rose piston. Those are cool off. too though. Those are all right. I'm talking, I'm more of a mountain biker myself. I'm talking about 
the cycles in the economic cycles and the real estate cycles that if you look hard enough, you'll be able to pretty easily see the down and the up and be able to predict them just like Dan did on that note. Yeah, and it's, it's trying to spot value investment opportunities, right? We're like, we are real estate value investors as well. We're not speculators. We're not assignment flippers. We're not trading options. We're not, you know what I mean? Like we're, there's simple input and output get rich slow scheme that can happen from real estate and Canada has been due to be reminded of that. And I think that we're, it's happening in real time right now. And so we're here to show you what that looks like, how to do that well, right? Because, you know, each of us has, has done it all right, even in a market that was, from my perspective, overpriced for the past several years. The sexiest get rich slow scheme you've ever seen. Yeah. All right, buddy. <laughs> Great to talk to you, buddy. Talk soon. Always a pleasure. Yeah. The Canadian Real Estate Investor is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in GNH Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.